in the tech world, it's rare these days to spend more than a few years at one company. So we were curious to learn more about Kristen Wisniewski after hearing she'd been at IBM for 18 years. In her words, she basically grew up at IBM. Kristen made a rapid transformation from an individual contributor role to a leadership position in 2016, where she now leads an award-winning design team. We got to know the story of that career transformation and what it took Kristen to get there. We also spoke with Kristen about clearing roadblocks for better productivity at work and how to bring more women into leadership roles at technology companies. Get ready to hear the inspiring story of an authentic leader. We hope you enjoyed the episode and thanks for tuning in. Kristen Wisniewski, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you so much, Eli and Aaron. So happy to be here. We're really excited to have you here. We've had a long-running relationship with several design leaders at IBM, and we're really excited to dive into you, your career, and what you're up to at IBM. Excellent. Maybe we could kind of start at the beginning. Could you tell us your origin story, where you grew up, and how you found your way into design? Sure. It's somewhat unusual. I stumbled into this field versus overtly came charging at it, but it was many, many moons ago. I was in my senior year at Binghamton University, and it was 2000, (laughs) if I age myself here. And so I took a course sort of randomly. I got a note in the mail that said, hey, you're at the end of your double major. You need one more class in psych, and I was also majoring in human development. The class that you opted for is no longer available. The professor has left town sought another position. So take one of these three and you'll be good. So I just sort of read all three, didn't know what any of them were, randomly circled one that said user-centered design. And I thought, well, I'm a user, I'm a human, let me, (laughs) I can probably figure this out. Let's try this one. And kind of went in with zero expectations. I was just ready to kind of finish out. And also I only had one class left. So it was kind of a light semester for me. And as it turns out, I ended up falling deeply in love with this subject matter, which I had not known about, again, 2000. So I was using computer pod services to work on Word to print out papers, and that was the extent of my technology experience, really, at that point. Cut to the end of the first class, I cornered my professor for an hour and just made him tell me everything possible about this field. And he basically said, if you do well here, I work at IBM, I have a great career there, working for the user-centered design group. So if this works out and you like it and this feels right, maybe we can set up some sort of internship. Cut two, that happened, and the rest is history. (laughs) I haven't looked back, no lapses. So I began in January of 2001 as a co-op. Now here we are 18 and a half years later, and I'm still here. (laughs) And, uh, And at this point, I'm working with still so many of the people that I trained under from day one. So it's really a unique story and an incredible one. (laughs) Yeah, there's a a lot wrapped up in this and a lot of heart in this story. Where's Binghamton University? It's Binghamton, New York. Binghamton, New York. Okay. That's right. Yep. I thought I recognized New York in your accent. Oh, yeah. Yes. And uh, I may need to slow it down. (laughs) Endicott, New York is actually the birthplace of IBM. So that's the office I started working at. Cool. That's amazing. What luck? What luck to get that class? What luck to find your way in? What luck to have a professor who was at IBM? How long have you been at IBM? So it's now 18 and a half years. That's pretty impressive. This is a time when people jump from job to job. So staying in one place for a long time is pretty impressive. You have said, quoting here, I basically grew up at IBM. What was that like? It's been quite 
a ride and such an interesting journey. I think the best way to summarize it right at this moment is to say that this IBM is the best IBM I've ever known. I've seen so many changes. And right now we have the honor and privilege for working for our CIO, Fletcher Previn, whose whole narrative is to lead with user experience and to always be metrics-based in everything we're doing and user-driven. And so with that, we are really positioned so well. And so we're in a growth model right now. And we can't say it enough that it's just a great time to be a designer in general and at IBM. And although our team is small compared to the charge that we're up against, we like to say we're small but mighty and we're making a big splash with what we're doing. It hasn't always been that way. I mean, in days past, we were knocking on doors and begging for work and trying to explain why you may want to use our services and proving ROI every which way. And then the tide started turning as the industry and the world sort of caught on, because I think we were sort of ahead of that early on. And now with such an appreciation of design and all that entails, at this point, there's a line around the block. So we're very well positioned and we've seen this huge shift and it feels good. It feels like we've always known this was the right thing and it just was a matter of time until the business could embrace that rather than working by deadlines and budgets. And in that model, the first thing to get cut is what they saw as just an accessory, a secondary service that's not critical to it working. But now there's a real appreciation and understanding that this is at its core, everything needs to be developed from the inside out, from the user's heart and soul. And then if you do that right, people will pull it from you versus you trying to push it on people. What shifted at IBM? So the IBM that you started at and you grew up in, there was a big shift. And a lot of people are talking about IBM and, and that it's gone through a big transformation. Yeah. Got people like Phil Gilbert there pushing mm-hmm. that forward. Exactly. What tipped the scales and made the company more design focused? I think that's it. The group that I started in was called User Centered Design. It was actually in global business services at the time that I started. And it shifted over to CIO in 2012, always with the same title, the same mission and charge. We haven't changed fundamentally how we've approached things, what we've done. But I think with Phil coming in and really bringing a big focus to design in general across all the business units, across all of our designers in the, in the different pillars who are client facing, it's really just brought the whole company to the table together and understanding the and appreciating the whole thought process behind it. The thing I love the most about design thinking is not that it's magical and it's not very different from traditional UX, but what's different about it is that it gets everybody around the table focused on user outcomes. And so I think that started happening with the onset of bringing in thousands of designers. And we have a slightly different model, which I think complements each other nicely, whereby we're a centralized service that services our CIO constituents in terms of designing for the IBMer. What does CIO stand for? So it's the Chief Information Office. Okay. Yep. So we report directly into the CIO himself, who is Fletcher Previn. And in Phil's model, it was centralized at one point, but now they've moved to a decentralized model. So the designers are now off living in the different BUs. So we have sort of the inverse going on at this point in time, which I think makes sense given our audiences are different. But I think generally speaking, we've kind of ridden this wave together and this has been a big reason why there's been a shift in the company. Leadership has just gotten on board mm-hmm. and 
for me and CIO, the CIO currently and the one prior also were very much focused on the benefits that this service can bring. If we could go back to your career trajectory for a moment, we did some LinkedIn sleuthing, and it looks like you spent <laughs> about 13 years as an IC, as an individual contributor doing usability engineering. And then in 2016, you shifted to a management position, and then two more years after that to a VP position. What happened in 2016 that put you on that new path to a management and leadership role? I was in this role as a practitioner, as you said, for many, many years, and I loved it. But I felt like, I don't know, I felt like there was something else for me. And so I actually took a small break and I applied for this corporate service corps assignment, which is a great offering that IBM has. And I was able to get deployed to Ecuador and I took a month to go work on a business challenge over there, came back. And in that time period, actually, just before I left, I took a position as a manager of a design teams. So when I landed back here on U.S. soil, I actually stepped right into a management role. So it was like a whole new world for me. And honestly, it didn't work for me at first. I really felt like I made a mistake and I'm not cut out for management. I'm a better practitioner, even though I was getting a little disillusioned just because it felt like I was doing the same thing over and over again and I was good at it and I loved it. I just was like, this can't be my forever. I need a bigger challenge. This was it. I got what I wished for, but I just didn't love what it was. And I was in a kind of precarious situation where I didn't completely jive with my direct manager and the situation wasn't what I thought it would be. And I wasn't able to really act according to my heart and soul and mind's desires. I was sort of just marching to orders and I didn't feel like it was very rewarding. And I started getting panicky, like, how long can I stay over here before I've gone too stale over here and I can't mm. go back? You were still hanging on to that individual contributor oh, yeah. mindset of I've got to make things. Yeah, exactly. And I couldn't really get my footing and I was trying to put my mask on and suit up and go to work and be this manager that I thought you had to be at IBM in, you know, it was more of my old school, like traditional thought of IBM. At some point I couldn't keep it up anymore. And I just started kind of taking my guard down and being more real with people. And to my utter surprise, people started responding to that. And suddenly I realized, oh, this is my management style. I can just be myself. I can be the same person I was over there, over here, and use my powers for good and help design and help every individual designer and help this cause and set the vision and manage upwards as needed to ensure that we have a good path forward and that people are really understanding what we're all about. So suddenly I drew all this courage and excitement and like power, in a sense, from this very freeing, liberating kind of thought that, Absolutely. all right, I... I got this. I'm just going to, this is, I never thought that you could just do that. You know, you can just tell your people the truth and say, hey, I fought for this and it didn't work out, but just know I tried and I'm still going to try for this again. And that's not the world I lived in as an employee. So it wasn't what I was trying to emulate. You're saying it wasn't modeled for you by other right. managers you'd had? Exactly. Exactly. It was, it was different day, you know, and, and, different worries and different leadership style and, and just different generations and lots sure. of differences. So I was trying to mimic that because it's all I knew. I had, you right. know, this, I was in the same place. I never skipped over to another company to have a different perspective. So that's really my world. And trying to mimic that didn't do me well. So I kind of went off on a different path and suddenly I looked behind me and everybody was, was following. <laughs> that's amazing. And did it change your relationship? You said that the person you were reporting directly into 
didn't always see eye to eye, didn't feel connected. Did letting your guard down change the way that the two of you interacted? It did, not for the better for that relationship, but definitely for the betterment of the team. And then that relationship became short-lived and I was soon moved out to be a direct report to the leader of that space. So we in turn got elevated by my sort of rogue style of leadership, if you will. And it was noticed then at higher levels and we were sort of swooped out and, and moved over and given now a different pocket of, uh, to work from. And here there were no bounds. This sounds like a pretty huge unlock for you. Not only did it make your day-to-day of like Sunday night, eight o'clock, you're no longer thinking, man, I got to wake up and go do it again tomorrow. I'm no longer crying, yes. <laughs> were you literally like at that point and like that much stress? Yes, yes. Even my colleagues and employees and my friends, everybody will say, oh yeah, that was a dark period of time. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was just a lot of pressure. My way to go through that was to just put my hand down, do great work and just kind of stay off the radar, do nothing but amazing stuff day in, day out and protect everybody that I have anything to do with and shield and protect and just give everybody the space to do their best work. That was my protection mechanism, but it actually ended up being, I think, what ended up propelling us to the next level. Let's double click into this a little bit more because it sounds like this is not only a personal unlock, it's also a team unlock. That you created an environment where people felt more connected and trusted. Trusting you and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe trusting each other a little bit more. I would 100% say so, yes. We bonded on different levels over an experience that we were all feeling to different degrees. Mm -hmm. And I think for sure, we felt more team cohesion and more of a drive to kind of prove ourselves and shine. And I, I think it worked. And then you had a block above you. And in growing that team, you got that attention that you needed. Right. So you could go around to a different place where you could live up to your potential. Is that right? That's totally it. And I was so excited to have arrived at that place that we just made so much of it. We embraced it to such a degree where we launched all kinds of new things in the way of engagement and we were doing leadership enrichment and we were going on cultural safaris and having team retreats and embracing each other and celebrating the everyday. And and we still do all these things. Of course, now it's slightly different with such a much bigger team that I have at this point in time. We can't do quite as much as we did, but there was a good period of time where we were really just sort of living large and doing amazing work and just kind of experiencing a new version of IBM that we had never had before. When you got to that point where you were able to bring your more of your authentic self to your leadership style and more vulnerability, more transparency. Did you find that in the folks that you're leading that that helped them also bring their authentic selves to their roles? Absolutely, absolutely. I I still hear stories to this day. (laughs) And I think because I'm just so transparent with people, I get to hear the real stuff going on. And I feel like I'm a part of it. And so I've definitely experienced that on many, many levels that people feel like they're able to do their best work. And I think that the biggest thing for me when I was a practitioner that I didn't like was that I wasn't able to pick and choose my projects. It was just, you get the next thing that comes down. And in my case, I got kind of pigeonholed in um, at the end of my practitioner career in the sales space, just because it so happened. I did a year of a sales project and it went well. The next one that comes up happens to be sales. Oh, Kristen knows sales. Kristen's our sales girl. 
She knows that audience. She has all this experience. Let's tap her for this, which I understand from a manager perspective, but I was never asked, hey, Kristen, do you like this space? Do you connect with it? Do you want to stay here? There's a whole wide world of IBM and you're focused on this 40,000 person segment. Do you want that? Or maybe would you want to try something new? And we didn't really have the opportunity or the privilege to operate in that way at the time, but I made it my number one goal as a manager to be sure that I'm checking and double checking and triple checking in some cases. Do you want to work on this? Or here's three options. Which one do you want? And I'm trying still to this moment and, and all the managers on my team feel the same way. And I'm very protective of the culture and the type of manager that comes in. You've got to have a great mix of things, but most of all, compassion and interest in looking out for the employee and wanting everybody to be their best. And so everybody is just naturally inclined to say, like, what are you interested in? What are you skilled in? What do you want to learn? And then we try to piece all these things together and constantly put people in places that give them the best opportunity to shine and grow and learn, and in some cases teach others, some cases learn from others. And I think it's a win-win because we get the best work out of the other end of that equation. So it works all around. It's not always a perfect science. And of course, you know, it's like a puzzle. And so there's going to be one piece that doesn't quite fit. There's one project left at this moment and there's some difficulties there. But for the most part, this model works really well. And I feel like personally, I'm always trying to not do the thing that I didn't appreciate when I was picking up projects and, you know, a worker bee. Kristen, you mentioned you went to Ecuador and then you came back and you were in this management role. Did you have to ask for that management role? Right before I left, I was tapped for it. Kristen, you'll be great at this. We have this idea. And I wasn't asking. I just, in my soul, I was searching and saying, something's, something's got to give here. I can't just keep doing this, which is what caused me to apply for this corporate service core experience. So it's just sort of serendipitously happened. But I was terrified when I was away thinking, oh gosh, I don't even know. It's not like you go to manager school and you come back and then you go to be a manager. You're a manager. <laughs> Your feet hit the ground and you're off and running and people are relying on you. And I knew nothing about this whole world and it's IBM. So we have like a hundred systems that you need to touch as a manager and nothing talks to the other system. It's a big, big, scary world. And I was really nervous about it, but I felt like there's no better setup here than to go on this experience that's all about leadership, working with different people from different parts of the world, different parts of the business who you have nothing, you have no connection to, solving world problems at the intersection of society, technology, and community, and trying to make a difference. So in many ways, I likened it to what my journey will be like as a manager and figured if I can handle this, I can probably handle this. <laughs> I just started blindly and I went in with one thought in my mind, which was, I'm going to be the best manager that ever happened to IBM. <laughs> and I actually, I verbalized it because that's me and that's what I do. And I shared it with my team members, the other 14 of us were who were there. And they were like, yeah, that's so cute, Kristen. That sounds lovely. Let us know how that goes. And there's like Snickers, half of them were already managers. And they're like, oh, she doesn't get it. She'll see, she'll learn. And, and of course it was a very long road, but I do feel like I'm getting to live out my dream. That's great. Yeah, and that verbalization of your desires actually turned out to be something that built this award-winning team. You won this Nielsen Norman Best Internet Design, is that right? The IT That's right. team yeah. of the year. Tell us about, maybe a little, dive a little bit more into what were the steps you took from knowing that you wanted to reach that level to getting there? What were some of the things, what's the backstory about reaching that peak performance? I think for me, like you said earlier, I guess a very personal piece of me was unlocked as well. I'm a planner, I'm a thinker, I'm a warrior. I, 
I will dissect a situation 900 times before it even happens and think about all the what ifs and, and all that. So I think I just got more confident and I started to watch, oh, okay, that was a success and this was a success. And yes, this worried me, but it worked out. And suddenly I started trusting myself more and seeing that my team repeatedly was responding better to me when I was guard down, open, free, and being real. And so I think a lot of it just came from feeling more confident and just getting like a little string of things in my wake and now realizing, okay, we've, we've got this. And then the bigger part of it might be that it's okay to fail and you just have to try it. There's going to be a bunch of things. When you're trying a whole bunch of stuff and a lot of it is new and it's not been done before, you have to be okay with some of these things not working. And instead of looking at it as a failure, looking at it as something you can learn from and so we started at the very same time we were embracing agile ways of working in IBM and particularly in the CIO office, which is now 12,000 people. And we're pretty mature in our agile journey comparatively to the other business units, but we still have such a ways to go. But I think that the onset of these ways of working really dovetailed nicely with what I was going for. And it's very much out with the old, no command and control, it's servant leadership, it's trust your teams. It's empower them, you form the team, and then they self-organize and they figure out what's right for them. And you don't make them feel like they have to run everything up and down the flagpole and get confirmation on everything they're doing. Instead, you attend the playback, you help them clear the impediments and the blockers, and you spend more time instilling confidence and trust and empowering each person. And so I think all of this kind of started happening. And I, in turn, was getting my manager wings, if you will, getting my stripe and just feeling a little bit bigger and stronger in the space because it felt like, okay, this is not just my opinion of what's working. I'm, I'm watching like some hard evidence around me that people seem to be happier. I felt more joy on the team. I saw greater output and quality deliverables and people having fun along the way. Because mm. if we're spending 70% of our time at work, we have to make this count and we have to lean into this whole thing. And so... I was able to live out the nirvana of, let's do this. Let's have some fun with it. If we hit a bump, that's okay. Let's figure out, let's have a retro immediately after and talk about, well, how will we not hit that same type of bump in the future? And lo and behold, you don't. You'll continue to hit them, but it will be slightly different. And I think it did us well to have this happening, you know, design sort of really blossoming and then Agile coming in and the unity of the two melding together and kind of giving me a good platform and giving the team a really healthy, good, interesting, different, collaborative, open, fearless place to work. The other really notable thing about your team is that there's a number of female leaders, which is still a rarity in the tech industry. Maybe you could give some insights to our audience about how they can help achieve similar outcome and get more women in leadership. It, it is an interesting one. I think we do have the majority share in our management team. Our team in general, so we're about 140 right now and we're still growing. We'll add a few more this year and another 22 or so next year. And so for every 10 people, I need a new manager is how I do it. It's not the norm necessarily. It's You can have up to 20 people reporting to a first line manager, but to keep this whole world I've been describing to you, I need it to be around 10. And then that way the managers also get to still be technical leaders and own an actual space that they're accountable for and responsible for. So most of the women leaders on the team, the majority have been practitioners on the team and have now, just similarly to my journey, have come up the ranks and have shown 
that they would be great role models. You don't have to feel, at least in this world we've created, you don't have to feel like you're hanging up this hat and now you're just putting on this one and you'll never look back and those days are over and you'll never open Sketch again and you won't do this and that. No, no, you will. You'll do all of these things because this is the model that we've set up. So I think that helps attract people. And we've certainly, we've brought in some wonderful female managers from other parts of IBM and we would still be open to bringing them in from external, from really anywhere. I think for me, as long as I see the heart, the passion, the drive, the curiosity, the hunger, all those unteachables, and just know that this person has themselves acted as a role model and walked the walk, then let's try it. Let's do it. And it just so happens, I guess, that it ended up this way. It's not like I always sought out to have X amount of women or this amount of diversity, but we do as a whole end up having a really diverse team. And that's very important to IBM right now. And, and I think the ticket there is be sure that you are very inclusive in how you're describing the job and who gets to come through the door. And then once they're in the door, then it, that's the biggest challenge, just getting people to come up to bat and the rest kind of naturally unfolds and you get the nice spread. It's definitely something I'm very proud of. I don't take credit personally by any means. I've had the opportunity of working with strong females around me my whole career. So I think it's just kind of ingrained in us at this point, which I'm really thankful for. And I know that that's not always the case, but I think it's just being open. And like I said, offering that this is not just a people manager job, at least in my world, this is something much more unique than that. And I think that that draws a lot of people in and a lot of interest. Talk to us a bit about your hiring process, because you've described these skills, these soft skills that are so essential to success. Those can be hard to screen for though. Oh yeah, definitely. We have an amazing recruitment team, and this is kind of part of our design ops model that we've got these discrete functions that we've declared and we have an owner over each of them. And so we have this kind of down to a science at this point and we do a great amount of upfront screening, but more so I think we see what happens then in the process as it unfolds and it's very rigorous. And I think it sort of weeds out the people who don't have the drive to want to go through this because you have to go through several group interviews. You have to do an assignment. You have to bring your work in and get feedback on it. And in many cases, you'll have to go do another iteration of it because that's very telling in itself. Even if it's a wonderful piece of work, it's really interesting to say, hey, if we were the customer and we would have maybe had a different vision, how might you respond to that? And how might you modify your work? And just watching the person's ability to be able to take that constructively and positively and be professional and receive it well and in some cases maybe crumple up their work and start again and do something equally as amazing but different I think is a really really telling skill so we do this this series of group interviews and so many members of our team take part in this and I'm so thankful that people they care so much about the team that they devote time it, this is like extracurricular for them they're still all committed to all their project work and everybody's stressed to the normal degree that we all are in every day because we have to deliver. That's at the end of the day why you're getting paid. But this extensive team of practitioners bands together and they go through this process with all these people. And what we get out the other end is a really amazing, talented group of people who are passionate and kind and want to learn, want to teach others. And it's just our culture. The pride that I have just grows with every person that comes through the door. But I think I see our culture improving. And that was a worry of mine that how can I protect this sort of mom and pop shop that we have going and everybody knows everybody and we know the cat's names and we know the kids' names and who has carpool on what day and everybody's so close and united 
to now it's sort of like we're running a franchise and we've got different units of us in different offices under different leadership, all working together. So how do we keep that cohesive was something keeping me up at night for a long time. But it ended up that between this really sound recruiting process and everybody being a part of it and being able to weigh in and have a say in the future of our team and then having leaders who are just such wonderful people that are really committed to the cause and all have kind of the same line of thinking and the same view of the world today and the goals that we're striving for. It's all happening and I'm sleeping at night. <laughs> you touched earlier on how at IBM you're able to embrace an agile workflow but also bring the design process into that. I'm curious how, you know, in your design ops role, how do you support working cross-functionally with other teams? Because we have the centralized model, it's also a centralized partnership model because we're a shared service. So we have 10 partner domains who are all my peers and they form different parts of the process. So there's one that has systems and tools and provisioning of the fact that we're using Macs and PCs and getting your mobile phone enabled, all of that, the tooling that we use. And then we have the engineering team, which is sort of a sister to ours in a way in that they don't have designers, we don't have engineers and developers. So on any given squad, you're going to find a mixture of our teams. And then we've got networking and we've got security and you know all the infrastructure, all the other parts of the business. So we squadify to the degree that we can. We embed our team members into the squads. And then there's a set of work outside of squads where it's deemed to be short-term, less than six weeks or so. And it might be that it's a video or it's a branding exercise or it's a facilitation of a design thinking workshop or a UI piece of work that's kind of like one and done, not part of a larger project. So we balance the long-term and, and the short-term but for the embedded projects, those are all cross-functional squads. So they live in the house together, the designer house, go out by day into their squad. For the most part, this is like 80% of our team. And then come home at night back to the designer squad. And we do a lot of sharing out. We have a guild almost weekly. It used to be every other week, but there's such a high interest. We've been doing them more and more. So we try to keep learning from each other. But this is not to say that it's all healthy squads and happiness and rainbows everywhere. It's it's not. There's lots of different levels of maturity, even within the different domains that we work with. And each squad has its own level of chemistry. That's the whole nature of the beast here, <laughs> for better or worse. So we actually have the benefit now. We're not just a design team. We also have agile coaches on our team. There's about 20 of them, and they do coaching, training, and facilitating they also run uplift programs for upskilling and really deeply ingraining the true nature of the role of an IM and a PO like into the role. Because I think what happened when we first introduced Agile is we just shifted a lot of existing roles over and we were like, poof, you're the IM, you're the PO, you were a PDTL, you were a PM, and now you're this. And didn't really describe how the role had changed and didn't really hire explicitly for that particular role. We just sort of transitioned. And I think we lost something in doing that. And so given that that's the history of it. We're now concentrating on a big focus on across the whole of CIO, trying to uplift the skill within these particular roles. How does design fit into Agile? This is one of the recurring criticisms that we often hear is that design and Agile, they don't fit together. They're not really meant to. Are you finding ways to make things work? <laughs> it is. You, it's a hot topic. It's such a hot topic that we just had our summer interns devoted entirely to 
let's nail agile and design because we've been struggling way too long with trying to make this work. There's some degree of friction, like you're saying, between the two disciplines, but the vision of it is a beautiful land where this works so nicely and one complements the other and the squads are happier, better, higher chemistry, higher velocity, higher output, higher quality, everything as a result of it. So we feel, and when I say we, I'm talking more like the leadership team here on CIO Design feels that we need to be the role models in this space and we need to teach everybody and we need to be doing it in our shop because here we have the shop that contains design and agile. <laughs> so what happened was agile came into the design shop and we didn't, I, I will take full responsibility. I, I feel like I didn't focus enough on it and didn't probably know enough about it truly to be able to myself work that integration. And so by now we have promoted another executive on our team. She sits over design ops and agile. And now we see a lot of movement in the space because she herself is deeply passionate about both spaces and the integration. She herself is a certified PO and I am. And so we've got a lot of movement happening. And now we've appointed a lead from the design side and a lead from the agile side and some supporting members to work together to figure this out once and for all. And then to go trial it out and to try to move into the squad and do some hands-on work to try to experiment, if you will, and pilot out some of these concepts. And then one other piece of this that's timely and important is that Phil Gilbert has the same idea where he's rebooting his design camp idea, but he wants to do it this time with agile coaches embedded as well. So being that we have agile coaches in our team, we're working together now to do a reboot of the program that does incorporate both disciplines. So right off the bat, people are coming in, understanding how these things fit together and appreciating it and not just saying, well, I'm a team member because by the book, Agile doesn't call out designer as a role. And so we want to change that and we want to push the envelope on some of these constructs and take the pieces that work really well for us and kind of tweak the pieces that don't and realize that the world has shifted and we're five years into our Agile journey. We don't still have to, by the book, follow everything we learned at the start of it when we were watching Spotify's amazing 10-minute videos when we knew nothing of it. You know, at this point, I think part of the whole spirit of Agile is you have to make it your own. No Agile practitioner will ever say, the answer is this. It's, well, what does the team think? What do you guys want? Whatever the team thinks is right for them is really, that's the answer. They could be doing something totally different, but if they're healthy and happy and have good chemistry and you don't want to mess with that. I'm sure our listeners are nodding their head as you, <laughs> as you talk about Agile and design. Is there one problem, one stumbling block that you've seen at IBM between these two disciplines where you figured something out, like there was an unlock of if we do it this way, it clears a roadblock for us? One thing that we think from the design side is really important is to have the designers working a sprint ahead to the degree that that's possible to be able to be researching what's coming up so that by the time the stories are picked up, they are informed with true user research, maybe not at the point where it's, they have design, but now we can design with competence and based on a pile of truth and real user data points and pain points and issues. And if we're all in the same time period, you're kind of missing the research part of it. And to me, that's the part that screams loud and clear, this is where this goes wrong. And I think the worry from the Agile side is, well, we have to all be on the same page in the same sprint. But that can happen in harmony if we just kind of accept that the designers are focusing on the upfront piece of the same stories, but 
getting a, a bit ahead so that we can all focus on the same thing in the next sprint. I think you have to just kind of find a way to make that work. And then I feel way better about it. Otherwise, you, you just end up going really fast, but in the wrong direction. Yeah, right. Exactly. What you've done or what you're working on doing with Agile sounds a lot like it parallels some of the adaptations you made to the design thinking process, which had sort of been established outside IBM, but you brought it in and customized it to the way that your teams work. Yeah, I think that's the spirit of it. And I can liken that back to my management style, even that you read the rule book and it's kind of like the, the Shuhari concept. You got to start out, learn all the forms and the disciplines and stay very much in the box then start flexing, bending, dipping your toe, trying something a little bit different, see what works, see what doesn't. And then finally, it's your version of it. And it's informed. It's, it's based on the reality of what you're dealing with, who the people are. They, these aren't, and I love this about our agile practitioners, they'll correct me if I ever say resources. Kristen, no, these are human beings. These are people, you know? And so we try to take some of that lingo out and try to remember always to be we're talking about human beings, you know, yeah. we're not just hiring 30 bodies to fill seats. And these are 30 different personalities and everybody's got preferences for styles of working. And all of this has to be considered in, in everything you're doing. And so if you're just listening to that, that's half the battle. And then if you're actually taking it home and using it as part of the ingredients of what you're pulling together, then you have a way more sound story that you can rely on. Could you just talk a little bit about how design ops works at IBM? Yeah, I, it's my favorite topic, in fact. So we look at it as it's the dance that's done across these very coordinated set of programs and initiatives that keep us operating in a healthy way. The main goal is to take as much off the designer's plates as possible so that they can actually design. And... The other goal is to streamline things so we don't have everybody doing a little bit of the same thing every day. And if you have one person that's handling that, you also immediately have accountability and responsibility. That person feels really good because they have an area of ownership that they feel proud of and they can make their own. And when you don't have that, you just get a lot of diffusion of responsibility, even though there's a lot of care and interest and heart. And we can all come together and talk on conference calls all day long about these things, but if you don't have somebody that can take that and move the ball and come back in and report on it, you'd get nowhere fast. So we started realizing that at about the point we had 20 people that it used to be, I would just give out projects on our weekly meeting and I knew everything that was going on and it was just really easy peasy. And we had one Trello board and it was just simple days. And then as soon as you got, I think 20 was a tipping point for us, it just became okay, we got we to gotta get organized here or we're not going to have engaged, happy, skilled, effective, successful people. We're going to have a big old mess. So we broke things down into very discrete areas. We have our owners. And I think, I know that design ops means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think for us, or for me personally, if I had to sum it up in one word, I would say it's the collaboration or the communication, kind of, okay, two words, <laughs> but similar words in that, each area is doing its thing, but these areas have to speak to one another. And there has to be a solid flow of information. And this team needs to be informing this team, needs to be informing this team. And all of these things need to sort of align. And the tooling needs to be sharp and on point. And we can't just be siloed off doing things. And then we've created an even bigger problem than we had to begin with. So I think the cohesion of these units is what makes 
this work for us. We're excited about it. We're, we're definitely not all the way yet. I think if I envision it to be a four-stage process, we're in stage three. I don't quite know what stage four looks like yet, but I'm excited about it because I know it's going to be better than where we are. It requires a lot of reorganizations. Some of them are painful, especially on a team like ours, where a lot of these people have been here since day one, 20 plus years. And so when you move and shift things, it's not just moving a piece of work here to there or moving a person to report to a different person. It's like there's feelings and emotions and a lot tied up in that. And you try to balance the business need with the personal desires and you can't ever get that perfectly right. So stuff like that will weigh heavily on my heart. I still don't know if I'm a good manager per se. I think like on a one-to-one level, I I think things like that, I have a heavy heart. You know, I I feel like if I were a psychologist, I would just take everything home with me and just cry every night. (laughs) It's good to surround yourself with all different kinds of personalities that can help kind of balance this out and to have a, a really strong kind of cabinet of people that you can rely on most directly to help you make sound decisions. So I'd never make a single decision without running it by a whole plethora of people inside and outside of work. And so by the time it gets made, I feel like, okay, I've weighed my options. This is the best one. But I think that's part of design ops because you have to be always looking to what's next and be okay with there's going to be growing pains. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Lindsay who said on her podcast with you guys that it's like buying shoes that are too big that your toddler is going to grow into. Or was it the other (laughs) way around? But it was, I laughed when she said that because it feels like that. It feels like that every day. Like you're, and then as soon as it starts to get, you, you think, oh, okay, that reorg we did six months ago, I'm feeling it. This is awesome. This is working. Everything is gelling and flowing and it's great. And then it's poof, here comes the next one. And, and I hate the feeling that people live in a constant state of angst and wonder. So I'm working on, and, and the leadership team is working very hard to ensure everybody that we've got you. Don't worry. Things are going to change. It's the nature of the beast. But we're always going to have your best interest at heart and the best interest of this team. And we're trying to future-proof this team. I love this one thing my boss Fletcher said once, which was the pilot, if you're flying somewhere and you hit some turbulence, you never want that guy to come on and be like, hey guys, I don't know what's up. I'm just taking coordinates from some guy on the ground and I'm just doing it and probably will land okay. But I don't know because it's really not my decision. I'm not calling the shots and taking orders from above and I'm just kind of doing what I need to do blindly without, like nobody wants that. What you want even though the situation is exactly the same, you want your pilot to say, hey guys, we're all in this together. I've got you. Don't worry about what you just experienced. It's normal. Maybe we'll hit it again. That's normal too. We're all, yeah, we're everybody's going to be just fine. Yep, we'll get through this. We've done it before. And you want that kind of feeling on your team. And so it's natural for people to wonder what's next. So I think it's hard But a really important task is to focus on trying to give people that sense of security and confidence. And I think part of that is ensuring that each unit, each manager and their 10 or so people feels really, really strong together and feels like they can turn to their manager first forever for everything and feel really comfortable asking the hard questions. One of our managers started this thing where she says, okay, it's 10 minutes, ask me anything, go. And they will ask the hard questions, the things that you know they're thinking about, they're talking behind the scenes and might as well put it out there. And suddenly it feels like this is a much less scary place. And I feel better knowing that people are talking about these things. And then they know that we're listening, we're hearing it, we're considering it. And then they can start to trust more and more that the decisions we make is really taking into account all this stuff. Kristen, I want to reflect back something that I've heard in most of your answers. And I hope our listeners picked up on it too. 
you have many times mentioned your awareness of the emotion, the emotional temperature of your team, the emotions of the individual, thinking about your team as people, not as resources, as groups. And that question, that rhetorical question, am I a good manager? I don't know. What is it? What are the qualities of a good manager? From where I sit, I think that that's one of the most important, uncoachable, critical parts of being a successful, really great manager. So I hope everyone picked up on that from what you've shared. Thank you for saying that. And that makes me feel better too. So that's good. <laughs> so we want to wrap up with a question that we ask many of our guests, which is what's inspiring you right now? Are there any books or podcasts or even people out there that you're just finding really inspiring in your day-to-day role at IBM? In full transparency, because that's my way. I've been stressing about this question because I knew it was coming. I was thinking at first, like, I have to give the most perfect, the smartest answer. I have literally stressed about this for a long time. And then, <laughs> and then I just realized, like, and I think the reason it was stressful to me is because there's not one thing I like to sample from life's buffet, if you will. And I think that the book, if I try to pinpoint a little bit for you guys, the book that I read most recently that has kind of launched a series of things for me is Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. The title alone was enough mm. to catch me. It's a great title. It, it was so good, so good. Um, Susan Cain. But it caused me to revisit Myers-Briggs and retest myself. I tested when I first came into this group because that was part of what we did. And that was, again, almost 19 years ago. I tested again. And I thought by now, I must have, I don't know, things must have changed. I know your personality doesn't really change, but maybe my my thought towards certain aspects of life, or, um, or I'm more secure now, I'm married now, it's, I don't know, things may have changed, I may answer differently. Nope, still the same. So I thought that was so interesting, and it's caused me, and the reason I have a hyper-focus on personality type and teaming is kind of back to what you guys gleaned from what we've been talking about. It's that this is a whole team of emotions, and um, on paper, it's really easy to say, I'm hiring 30 people this year. But as these people, and it's all in one office, my office that I work in. So as these 30 people start coming through the door, I started getting panicky thinking like, oh my God, these are, this is not 30 people. These are 30 different personality types, 30 different people with their own everything, their own interests, their own education, their own baggage. Like every, <laughs> baggage, sure. Yeah, yeah, everything, everything, what they want. And names and faces that I better memorize immediately because I want them to know that I care about them and I want to know your story even though we're getting big and I know I can't have that forever but to the degree I can I am going for it so I feel like I'm trying to be very very cognizant of we've got a whole mixed bag of people here and all the things that we do engagement wise and we do a quarterly birthday celebration and a happy hour and cultural safaris and this and that and I'm trying to make sure that we're always doing activities that appeal generally to whether you sit on the introvert or extrovert side of the scale. So people don't ever feel like, oh, great, I hate doing these things. And I get it. I'm an introvert who pretends to be an extrovert. So I understand it and I empathize with it deeply. And so I think I'm just really into that right now, into personalities. And the one thing that that has then also caused me to think of is we have this thing at work that we do, which is the 100 Days Project, 100 Days of Making. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in short, it's a celebration of process. It's the idea of for 100 days, you pick a thing that you want to do that you could have zero skill in, or you could have an interest in, or you could have a light skill in, or whatever it is, something creative, and you do it every day in a short period of time, and then you publish and share it. And it's the whole concept that you have to show up for yourself every day. 
And you have to kind of stop focusing on any kind of polishing the apple, finished product sort of mentality. And instead, do something every day, just chomp away at it, know that you're iterating, you're trying, you're focusing, and you're getting better at whatever this is, and you're learning so much along the way. And some of them are going to, you're not going to want to post them. I did it myself. I did handwriting. And there were some days I was like, there's no way I could show my team this. It's horrible. But I would just post it and be like, nailed it, failed. It, it just kind of became some of the fun of it. And I think this process, we always do like a big retro at the end of what this experience was like for people. And you will see not a dry eye in the room. And it's an introvert and an extrovert. And events like this are bringing the team together. And I feel like once you do stuff like that as a part of your daily, like this is part of the work journey that they're on, then you send happier people back into the squads the next day. And you have a better story to tell around the dinner table at night. And when you greet people for a team meeting in person, you're hugging. You're not shaking hands, you know? And so that's a really long answer. I think my inspiration comes when I'm not trying to be inspired, when I'm just sort of surprised. I saw a poster on the subway or I overheard a conversation on the train in and I do spend a lot of time commuting. So I get a lot of stimuli and inputs from all over. So I feel like as long as I'm tuned in, it's coming in and then something happens with that later. And we actually put something into place in our team. Anybody can bring any wild idea to the table and we often just try it and then if it sticks, it sticks. And we're known to be like somewhat weird and <laughs> eccentric as a team and that we do kind of off the cuff things that are not typical, certainly not typical in IBM. And I feel like all of this comes from just recognizing that we're all just people trying to get through life. We want us to be good. We, we're trying to make a living, yes, but we want to make this 70% of our life solid and make this make sense. Let's have some fun here while we do the tough challenges and solve interesting, challenging problems with smart people that you actually want to be around. Amen. (laughs) That's great. Kristen, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. What a pleasure it's been talking with you. Oh, thanks so much. This has been great. I really appreciate it. And I'm honored to have been invited in. Thank you. 